For weeks now, we have been focusing together on what it means to see Jesus, or at least see Jesus more clearly. And we've been using the Gospel of John as our guide. And you might remember from the Gospel of John that one of the primary ways that John helps us to better see Jesus is through various miracles that he describes for us. Except in the Gospel of John, he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. You know that a good sign is something that points beyond itself. The purpose of a sign is not to draw attention to itself so much as to point us on to the thing of greater importance and that which we really should be focusing on. So it might be helpful information or more important person or a specific place we need to get to go, but it's never about the sign itself. Good signs do that. They point beyond themselves. But you know as well as I do, we live in a world where not all signs are good, Uh, They don't always do exactly as they are intended. And so I came across a couple signs that I would describe as not very good that I wanted to share with you here this morning. I saw one sign that said, again, remember, this is a sign saying this, it said, no signs allowed. So just picture seeing that somewhere. I don't know where exactly it was, but, you know, there's a bit of a disconnect there for a sign to be in a place that says no sign allowed. Here was another one I liked, a sign that said free Wi-Fi starting at $59.99. I think a few words accidentally got left out there, but if not, it certainly doesn't make sense to advertise free Wi-Fi when it costs almost $60. So that sign was clearly not doing its job. Here was another one I saw I kind of liked. Anyone caught exiting through this door will be asked to leave. Hmm. Think about that for just a second. I'm thinking they're already on their way out. I don't know that they have to be asked to leave, but, you know, whatever, you know. And then here was one more, a sign that said, always open and then closed. So, again, some disconnect going on there. But, you know, these signs clearly are not doing exactly what they were intended to do. But thankfully, when it comes to the Gospel of John, every sign, every miracle that John has in there does exactly what it's supposed to do. And those signs in John point us on, beyond the signs themselves, to the ones who are doing those signs, to Jesus himself. We are now on the third sign in the Gospel of John as we come together here this morning. And we look at this account of Jesus healing this man by the pool. And I want to ask us to look pretty carefully at this story. And in particular, I want to invite us to consider three components to the story. Number one, the pool at the beginning of the story. The Sabbath, number two, at the end of the story. And then really the crux of the story is about the man who was healed and looking at his account throughout the entire story. So the pool, the Sabbath, and then in between, the man. And it's really that third point we're going to spend most of our time on. So if you haven't already done so, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles with me. And we're going to be looking together through chapter 5 and what's going on and these three points in particular. I want us to focus and understand, first of all, on the idea of the pool. We're not going to spend much time on it, but I want us to be very clear. When it says pool in Scripture here this morning in the Gospel of John, it's not like a pool that you and I often think of. It's not a nice in-ground pool where you dive off the diving board and get to enjoy it. Instead, what they're talking about here would be more what you and I would probably call an underground spring, something more natural, something more rustic. But the idea that when you'd be looking at a pool of water, there might be a spring underneath it bubbling up. And for the folks at this time, when they would have been looking at the water, there was a belief. And their belief was this, that if they couldn't feel any wind moving and they couldn't see anything that would be out there causing the water to move, their thought was, if we see water moving or stirring, there must be something holy going on. 
And for them, they said, there's probably an angel of some kind that is here right now stirring these waters. And so they thought if something holy is going on and maybe there's a divine angel here stirring the waters, then what they thought was if you could get to the water while it was being stirred, maybe with one of these holy angels, if you could get in the water while that was happening, then you would be healed. And so lots of people would gather around, and as soon as it would start to stir or move around in some way, they would try to get into the water first so that they could be healed. The problem for this man is that he cannot walk. This man that we hear about in Scripture this morning. So every time the water would stir, he couldn't get there before somebody else got in the water. Now, one of the things that's always interesting to me about Scripture is which details it gives and which ones it doesn't. And I've told you before, there's always details I would like to know that Scripture seems to leave out. For example, in this case, we hear this entire story about this gentleman who's been an invalid for a very long time, but we're never given his name. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what's his name? What should we call this guy? How about Thaddeus? That's a good biblical name. Or, you know, what about Frankie? Uh, Or just out of curiosity, I was looking up the number one name for boys so far in 2017 is Liam. Uh, So maybe we could call him Liam here this morning. But, you know, we're never given that detail. But we are given other interesting details. And one of those I want you to notice with me is if you look in verse 5, and again, uh, on your phone or Bible in hand, look with me at verse 5, and here's what it says. One of the specific details were given. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now think about that for a moment. 38 years. That is an incredibly long time. There's a part of me that even as I read that and I picture this poor guy sitting there or laying there for almost four decades, my heart goes out to him. Because I'm like, nobody should have to suffer for that amount of time Ever. I mean, that's such a long time. There's a, there's a sense of compassion that begins to well up within me for this poor guy. And we're never told why he can't walk. We don't know if he was born this way, and therefore he's now 38 years old. Or we don't know if he worked for 20 years first and got hurt on the job and needed to call a lawyer, and something happened, and now he's maybe 58. We have no idea. All we know is that for 38 years, this man has not been able to walk, and he's not been able to be healed. That's one of the details Scripture gives us. Here's another one. If you look with me in verses 6 and 7, it says this. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So picture what's going on here. Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. And this man's first response is to make an excuse. And I point that out because I think it's a reflection of his character, which we'll see a little bit later on. It just really strikes me. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? I'm expecting a yes or no answer. And this man is like, well, all this time there hasn't been anyone to help me get down to the pool. In fact, every time I want to go, somebody always beats me there first. Kind of this whiny kind of thing. And I hear that and I'm like, "Um, you're not answering the question, buddy. Just answer yes or no. We're not looking for excuses. We're not looking for your whining. I mean, just yes or no. So kind of keep these things in mind. On the one hand, Jesus comes upon this guy, and and our hearts go out to him. 38 years of not being able to walk. And at the same time, when he's asked the question of, do you want to be made well, all he does is offer excuses and whining. I want us to keep that in mind because we're going to unpack some of this relationship between Jesus and this man. In fact, there are three stages that I want us to look at here this morning. The first one is this. Notice that Jesus comes to the man in need of healing. 
This is incredibly significant. Again, I know we looked at it, but one more time, I want you to look at verse 6 with me. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? We almost get the sense that Jesus comes upon this man, realizes it's been almost 40 years of not being able to walk, and it's like his heart just goes out to him. But notice, Jesus approaches him first. Jesus goes to him first. It wasn't the man who asked the question first. It wasn't the man who sought Jesus out. It's Jesus doing the asking first. And that's incredibly, incredibly important for us because we find here a biblical principle that you see throughout Scripture. And this is one of those times I'd want to put the neon lights on and say, please don't miss this. Here's what I want us to understand from that point. It's this. If we ever find God, it's because God first came searching for us. In the United Methodist tradition, we call this prevenient grace. And I want us to get that. This, again, is so important. We see it over and over throughout Scripture. Our hearts are almost predisposed. uh, Our hearts are almost set up against God in some ways. I mean, on our own, we rarely seek out God. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, you remember that when Adam and Eve had a chance to worship God, what happened? Eventually, they chose their own way. You and I are exactly the same way. We have a tendency to run from God. And so God and God's wonderful grace and God's wonderful love is proactively always searching for us, pursuing us, coming after us. Whether we're ignoring God or even for those of us actively rejecting God, God loves us so much that he's always pursuing us. So that he comes along and at some point can almost prick our heart to help us be open in a way we were never open before. And the Bible tells us this over and over. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 44, it says this. Jesus is talking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So God is working first. Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And then 1 John chapter 4, this might be one we've heard before, we love because God first loved us. This God loves us so much, he comes proactively looking for you and for me. So if you are sitting there right now or you're watching this online and there is a frown on your face, please turn that upside down because this is incredibly good news. This God loves us so much, even when we're not looking for him, he is on the run looking for us, searching for us, doing anything he can to pull us towards him and help us to see. One of the things that comes to mind for me is, is a couple weeks ago, I saw almost on the same day, the same thing was happening, but two completely unrelated people. Two of my friends on Facebook put about the same thing on. They had been with their dogs, and their dogs had somehow gotten loose and took off, and they were lost. And on this particular, again, happened to two different people on almost the same day. Here was what was interesting to me. Picture this happening. Picture the dog is out there. I imagine that when the dog got loose or got out of the yard or wherever the dog was and the dog is running down the street, I'm imagining that dog is so happy. There is a sense of freedom and joy and they're exploring a new world. And I bet it just felt so good to them. They had no idea, those dogs, as they were running away, that they were actually lost. That wasn't going to dawn on them until much later. I bet in the moment they were just enjoying every freedom that they had. But why this was on Facebook is because both owners, out of love for their animals that were now lost, that they couldn't find, had proactively gotten online to say, here's what my dog looks like, and here's what my dog responds to if you see him, and please, if you do see him, here's my number, call me or text me 
so I can get my dog that I love back. Those owners were already proactively seeking out the dog that was lost, even when the dog didn't know it. You and I are very, very similar, that even when we're lost or running away and maybe don't even actively realize it, this God comes searching for us and loving us and so often takes the first step to draw us back into his love. That's the first stage of what's going on with this man. Then we move on to the second stage of what's happening, and we notice this. Almost always, when Jesus first starts working with us, we're just trying to seek a sign rather than the Lord. And here's what we mean by this. Pastor Janet actually spoke about this a few weeks ago. Our tendency with Jesus is to first use him as a means to an end. You and I, very often, if we're going to start walking with God, our first tendency isn't really to seek God. It's to seek what God can do for us. So we think that God, we think that Jesus will be a means to an end for us. So we want something and we realize, hey, Lord, you might be able to help me get that which I can't get on my own. And so what we're really seeking a lot of times isn't really Jesus, isn't really God, but rather what God can do for us. And we notice this at this point in this story with this man. Somebody approached him and he realizes, hey, maybe this guy can help me get down to the water, help me finally be healed. And you get the sense it's not really Jesus he wants, it's what Jesus can do for him. And truthfully, all of us are this way at the beginning of our walk with Jesus. Rarely do we start at the very beginning realizing that salvation is found in Christ. We rather want Jesus to take us to that which we think we want. I still remember growing up, my pastor that was incredibly influential in my life, he told this story many times, I still remember it. When he was a teenager, he said his first thought was not, how can I follow God, how can I live for God? He said, the first time that I ever went to youth group, I went for one reason. He said, there were lots of pretty girls at that youth group. And he said, I thought if I go and I'm in close proximity with them, I might have a chance of you know, finding a girlfriend and being happy and being fulfilled. And yet through that, even though his first intent wasn't to go and seek God, God used that opportunity. Eventually, my pastor's heart was changed. And he came to give all of his focus and attention to following Jesus. I've shared with you in the past that for me, on one of the most significant days of my life, when my eyes were opened in a different way, it was at a water park with a group of my friends. I can assure you, I did not go to the water park that day saying, how can I best serve God today? And how can I learn about God? I went for one reason. I wanted to have fun at the water park. That was my sole reason for going, except that when I was there, unbeknownst to me, God used that opportunity to open my eyes up in a way they had never been opened before. And I wonder if any of us are very different in that. We tend to seek the end of what we think God can do for us instead of God himself. And so we all offer prayers like this. Lord, if you will just help me provide for my finances and just create a way where I don't know how it's going to happen. If if you just do that, then, then we can be good. Lord, if you just help me pass that test. God, if you just help me get that scholarship. Lord, if you just get me out of this addiction or this tight spot that I'm in, God, if you will just give us a child, Lord, if you will just give me a new job or whatever it is we think will fix our life, Lord, if you'll just do that, then we'll be okay. Except every time we do that, what we're doing is we're really seeking not the means, but we're, we're seeking the means rather than the means than the end. We are looking not for Christ himself, but what Christ can do for us. I love it in the Psalms when David is talking, Psalm 43, here's part of his prayer. He literally says when he's talking to God, he says, my joy. Instead of saying my God, he says literally my joy. He's not saying, Lord, you can help me find my way to joy by doing this. He just says my joy. 
In other words, my all, my life, my God, you are mine and I am yours. And I love that description because he's really seeking to worship Christ as Lord, not what Lord can do for him. And I wonder how that is for us as we even gather here this day. Are we seeking a means to the healing in our life or are we seeking the end itself? Christ the Lord who can provide in every way. That then takes us to the third stage of what we find here this morning with this man. Jesus makes it incredibly clear with this individual that Jesus does not take us to the water. Rather, Jesus is the water. And again, that ties in with stage two. Jesus says, I don't need to take you to what you think will make you happy. I am what will make you happy. I don't have to show you the way to where the water is. I am that water. And here's how we know that to be the case. If you look with me in verse eight, here's what Jesus says to this man. He says, pick up your mat and walk. And the man did. He didn't say, come over here or let me come to you and put your arm around me and we'll limp together down to the water where you'll be healed. He'll says, he says, pick up your mat and walk. Why? Because I'm the water. I'm the stuff. I'm the healing. I'm what you've been searching for. I'm what you want. I'm your salvation. You don't need that. You need me. So just pick up your mat. I'm the healing you've been wanting and looking for. Receive me. And because of that, I offer you healing. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Now, you might remember when we started this sermon, I said we were going to look a little bit at the pool and about this man and his account throughout the story. But we also mentioned there's some stuff going on with the Sabbath and what's happening there. And two times in this passage, the idea of Sabbath comes up. In verse 10 and verse 16, we find that the religious folks are there and they come to Jesus and they say, you are healing on the Sabbath. That's not okay. That's not allowed. And Jesus looks at these folks, and look what he says in verse 17. Again, they're accusing him. They're saying to him, you're healing on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be do that, doing that. And Jesus says, verse 17, well, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. Now, I want us to, to kind of to freeze frame here for just a moment and hear what's going on there. The rabbis taught their whole understanding was that only God Almighty, only God the creator of the universe could work or do anything on the Sabbath without sinning. It was only God that could do that. And so they come to Jesus and Jesus is like, well, yeah, my father and I were working. What's the big deal? And the religious leaders would have been like, you, you, can't, do, you can't say something like that. Only God can work on the Sabbath. And again, Jesus is like, yeah. My father and I, we're, we're, working, we're doing our thing. Now, you and I might not fully get it, but to these religious leaders, it would have hit them like a tidal wave. This would have been one of the most blasphemous things that Jesus could possibly utter, and he didn't even blink saying it. They would have looked at him and thought he is a crazy, absolute lunatic. And that's why it then says in verse 18, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And he didn't even flinch. I mean, this just would have blown them away. And then when you finish this passage and you hear about them wanting to kill Jesus, that's one of the reasons why. Because on this Sabbath day, Jesus dares to work and identify himself on top of that with the God of the Sabbath. Now, here's part of what I think John wants us to see in this miracle that I think is absolutely beautiful. 
If you go back to the beginning of creation, back in Genesis, you'll remember that God made everything in six days, and then it says on the seventh day he rested, he took Sabbath, he paused. He did that, God did that, not because he was tired and exhausted and needed to stop. When he did that, he paused because creation as he had designed it had reached its full fulfillment. It was as God desired. It reached its full healing in a way. It didn't need anything else. And therefore, in its completeness, God could stop and rest and enjoy. And now here is Jesus with this individual. And it's almost like on the Sabbath, he is now bringing full healing and completeness and fulfillment to this man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. And he's doing it on the Sabbath, a day in which this man finally, after 38 years, and now with this healing, could finally rest and be healed and be who he'd originally been intended to be without the infliction of being, un- being unable to walk. I don't know if you remember earlier in the Gospel of John, John describes Jesus as the Lamb of God. One of the ways we see Jesus is as the Lamb of God. It was a way of reminding us of Jesus being that Passover Lamb, the only one who could wipe away, atone for our sins. Now, here we are later in John, and Jesus is described as the Lord of the Sabbath, which means he brings a deep rest and a deep healing and deep salvation that only the God of Sabbath can bring. When God rested from his work in Genesis, again, it wasn't because he was tired. It's because he was satisfied and at peace. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, here's what Jesus is saying here. All you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. If you live for anything else, it will crush you. You will constantly be restless. You will constantly be searching And you will constantly feel the weight of everything. So this day, come to me. And whatever is keeping you from me, whatever it is that is a barrier to you seeing me, wherever it is that you need healing, come to me. For I am your rest. I am your life. I am your food. Do you see? And that's what this man who's being healed, has the opportunity to receive. And it's the same opportunity that you and I have as well. But here's sort of the the glitch in the whole thing. I love stories with happy endings. In fact, it's not a good story if it doesn't have a happy ending. But look what happens here. In verse 10, we almost get the sense that these Jewish leaders are scolding this man for carrying his mat. In fact, they are scolding him. They come up to him, they point their finger. Hey, who told you you could carry your mat on this day? That's working, that's breaking the law. You're not allowed to do that. And I would think that at this point, this man would be like, wait, wait, let me tell you why I'm carrying my mat. Like, you're not even gonna believe this. I couldn't walk for 38 years and this guy came along and he healed me and I didn't even think about it. I might be breaking the law. I just picked up my mat and I started walking. It's so amazing. I can walk after 38 years and blah, 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 blah. That's what I would think that this guy would do. But that's not what he does. In verse 11, this guy doesn't say, let me tell you about Jesus or let me, let me tell you what happened. He just says, hey, not my fault. Uh, the guy who healed me, he told me to pick up my mat and walk. Hey, it's his fault. If you want to be upset at someone, don't be upset at me. You be upset at him. 
And we see that as this story unfolds, at first the man doesn't know exactly who healed him. So when the religious leaders ask him who was it, he doesn't know. He has no idea. But then as the story continues in verse 14, it says Jesus and this man run into each other again. And Jesus says, look, you're well. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And again, at this point, I expect the man to be like, here he is. Here's the guy that I owe my life to, owe my healing to. I expect him to run up and give him a big hug and throw his arms around him and thank him for healing his life and changing his life forever. That's not what he does. Look what he did. Verse 15. The man then went away and told the Jewish leaders, it was Jesus who did it. It was Jesus who made him well. Here's the guy that you should be yelling at for causing the breaking of the law today. Which takes us back to those excuses he made at the beginning that we see a, a consistent character that he just doesn't get it. It's like he'd rather be in good with the powers that be because he's like, don't persecute me. Don't give me a hard time. It's his fault. It's Jesus' fault. And at least for me, there's a great sense of sadness here. That Jesus, the master healer, the Lord of the universe, the one who has healed him physically, is standing right there before him. And he doesn't see it. He doesn't see Jesus for who he is. And at least for me, I'm like, wait, that can't be the end of the story. Like, like where's the line that says, oh, suddenly he gets it? Well, at least in this time, at this point, we're never told that the guy gets it. And at least for me, that's pretty sad. But here's the good word that I want us to hear. Just because this guy who had been healed after 38 years, just because he didn't get it, doesn't mean that you and I don't have to get it. You and I have the opportunity here this morning to recognize that this master healer, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who can heal not only our physical ailments, but also any brokenness in our soul is also right here and right now. And today, you and I have the chance to see. We don't have to be like that guy. We don't have to be distracted by other things and miss the Lord of the universe who meets us in this very place. So as we gather together here this morning, I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what might be hurting. I don't know what might be broken. I don't know where we need that healing. But know this, the Lord of the universe meets us here and now to offer that healing and to allow us to see. And I pray this day that we would be willing to step back and say, Lord, I want to see you for who you are. I mentioned a while ago the idea of prevenient grace. Could it be that God has been at work? And is it a mistake that on this particular day, at this particular time, whether in this space or watching online, that God has been at work the whole time to bring us to this very point, to say, now, see and whether we've been here a thousand times before or today's our very first day, maybe it's not a mistake that God has been at work pursuing us and loving us so that in these very moments we can say, Lord, I see you. Come and heal me. Come and stir the waters of my soul and bring forth your healing. I pray this day that we'll realize we don't have to be like this man, but we can be healed not only physically, 
but in the very depths of our soul. May God help us to see.